Welcome to APIs Won't Hate, episode three. I'm Matt, here as always with my two really good friends, Phil and Mike. Uh, Mike, we'll start with you. How's it going? Hey, yo, I'm doing all right. I am reporting from my uh, new office and my new home here in Charlotte. Um, so if I seem lightly disheveled or if you hear some weird background noises, it's definitely the poltergeists in my new office. Perfect. I'll, hopefully hopefully they uh, left with the old people and didn't stay around, but you never know. That's right. Hard to tell. We'll flush them out eventually. Hopefully. Phil, uh, you're back in America right now, aren't you? Still? Yes. Uh, I came over for API City, went to Seattle to go to that conference. Um, really good conference, uh, as always. Um, Tessa Merritt did a great job. And then I took a three-day Amtrak to, to New York because I'm trying to avoid kicking the planet in the face too hard. Um, that, was a, that was a whole thing. Um, and yeah, now I'm in New York for a little bit while I wait for my, my foot to recover. That's great. You had a you had a foot problem, but I remember you were, you were ranting about it on Twitter. So we're not going to talk about that because I think everyone knows at this point what all is going on. But I mean, I'm curious how how like this is totally unrelated to APIs, but it is you, so it works. How like was the train ride? Uh, the train ride is actually pretty good. Um, the first train it went via Chicago, so it was two days, um, and then uh, and then one day uh, with a bit of break in the middle. The first train didn't have. Um, didn't have any Wi-Fi, so I was just using my like personal hotspot a bit. But there is no internet in North Dakota, none. The whole way through it, just nothing. Oil field, oil fields, and trains, nothing else. Um, and then the the train from Chicago to New York uh, had awesome Wi-Fi. It was uh, really quick, so I was just like working and resting my foot and watching telly and, and getting stuff done. I actually wrote a whole uh, a bit of book, so I got um, uh, the chapter I was talking about on last podcast, uh, surviving other people's APIs, the chapter about architecture. Uh, I managed to get that one going. Um, nice. So it, it was useful to like have you know that time to to focus on on writing and things. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I'd like to hear more about the train travels at some point because I I have an I I'd, I'd love to do a train traveling across the country, but like I know that's a whole lot of work. But um, so real fast uh, before we like really dive into it, there's two things we want to kind of do. Is uh, first off, thank Lorna. Uh, Jane Mitchell for her updates to openapi.tool. She really kind of helped us um, with kind of like the direction of the site, kind of uh, breaking out the topics. That way it's really easy for people to show up and kind of see what the site's about. And then also thanks for Phil for picking up the Slack for me not knowing Ruby uh, well enough to fix standards.rest. So we have a new little website out now, standards.rest, if you want to uh, check out any kind of standard around the REST pattern or uh, REST APIs, things like that. Um, we have that up and running now. So, uh, Phil, thank you for fixing that. Yeah, no worries. I got my mate to sort it out. Um, I'm staying here with uh, John Crepezzi, who works over at GitHub, and he is the best Ruby developer I've ever known. Uh, he was doing some crazy stuff, uh, and I just like, I was just typing in whatever he said. I was like, sure, that sounds fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, and uh, now it works. So, so I think uh, the big thing we want to talk about today is uh, a, a topic: GraphQL backend for front ends on rest and rest backend for front ends on graphql um phil i know you have thoughts um especially around using graphql on top of rest so like what what is going on with this sure so part of the architecture uh, chapter i was writing is about the concept of, of bffs which is backend for front end so um when you basically there's a lot of reason teams do it, and it could be the case that you know APIs are changing too frequently, um, so they want to kind of have their own API where they they proxy requests through, and and they can kind of control the, their own API. But it's much easier to update 
So um, things like, uh, you know, when, when an API maybe goes away, like if it gets turned off or if it changes substantially or they deprecate an entire global version, um, that can just break your client. And then you have to rush updates out to all your clients. It's not so bad if it's like a web app. And, you know, as soon as people refresh the browser, they, they've, got, they've got the new client. But um, and it's not so bad if you have like mobile applications that auto update, but for other people, the other users and users just have a broken experience. So um, BFFs are a way to give a bit of power to the, the front end teams and they just build their own API and change, change the code whenever they want. Um, a lot of people have been talking about using uh, GraphQL as a BFF on top of, uh, on top of REST APIs. There's a bunch of different reasons. I I'm not entirely sure I understand them. I I'm, I'm trying to avoid just like complaining about GraphQL. Um, but Generally speaking, the idea is that you want to create one consistent interface because all the other APIs might be super different. But as somebody who works in like API um, design governance, like why are all the APIs super different? You know, if every single API has completely different um, authentication strategies, like you should probably just replace it with um, uh, API gateway that has consistent authentication stuff built in, right? So, so that part of the use case is a bit weird, but um, yeah, generally it seems like GraphQL kind of strips away a lot of the HTTP-ness of the REST API. If, if the if the APIs in the background are all just trash and badly written, then you're not really losing much. That that kind of makes sense. But, but again, why are the APIs all trash? But there's people out here that can help you make good ones. Um, but generally, like all the HTTP caching logic, all of the um, all of the ability to monitor based on endpoints, um, so all of that stuff kind of goes away, and and you're just shoving stuff over the pipe with no like caching keywords or, or anything anything useful so i've been getting a bit confused trying to work out i'm trying to like write in this chapter why people use graphql as a bff over uh rest apis and i'm just like i don't i don't get it <laughs> well i mean that that came up at, at my my job where i'm getting ready to write a new api for like a microservice that we have and another guy suggested that the rest api i'm gonna write should interface to a graphql endpoint that'll then work its way down to the client and i was just kind of like i don't completely understand why we need to have all of these steps before when an api gateway just sitting in front of all of our apis is probably a lot less work a lot less confusing and is easier to uh kind of like onboard new developers as well yeah i think an api gateway can help out a lot of that with a lot of that stuff i mean if it's if it's about solving consistency issues then absolutely like uh you know you you can add authentication at the gateway level and then kind of remove it from those other http apis um and then you have consistent stuff and you haven't made every single team need to build their own api just so they can have a consistent experience um also things like um things like hypermedia i actually feel like are a lot more useful in a bff than in general right because if if the hypermedia controls or hatios um if hypermedia controls are like uh next available actions and state um, and like what you can do next with this data. I feel like a BFF is a really good place for HTS to exist because they have the extra context if they know exactly what that client is up to. Um, so different clients might actually consider different state. You know, like the, the data can have a certain state and like an invoice can be payable or whatever. Um, but then the BFF can take into consideration other information like who the current user is or um, I don't know, a bunch of different things and then figure out which actions to make available. So um I feel like a BFF being in REST it, it is much more useful than than necessarily a, a super generic backend. Um, 
and yeah, like having GraphQL as as a kind of more upstream service can be super handy. Um, you know, REST can wrap random databases and key stores and a bit of CouchDB for some reason and GraphQL and why not a few RPC things, but then you you smush it all down into this um, super rigid, well-defined interface that hopefully hopefully doesn't change very often um, and has like state on it. That, that just seems like exactly what REST is for. Um, so, so Phil, I'm going to ask you to define a couple of things, uh, particularly because from my perspective, I guess I'm not as experienced with using it, but tell me about the case for using an API gateway and when, when you would decide, it sounds like that's essentially something used for aggregating multiple services, yeah. together, right? I gotcha. Yeah. So, um, we worked, for example, uh, when I was there, we had a bunch of different APIs and it was full on Death Star pattern, you know, where like A and B and C and D, they all just require each other in this big, crazy dependency graph. Um, and every single API was completely different. Um, there was, uh, you know, everyone was implementing uh, authentication with different Ruby gems or with a JavaScript package or in different ways. And um, and caching was being implemented differently, like inside the application instead of at a generic HTTP level. Um, so basically, people were writing out a lot of the same functionality. Um, we wanted to add rate limiting to some APIs, and so people would install another rate limiting gem, and this this API would work differently to that API. So um, API gateways, uh, sometimes the term gets a bit confused, and people start trying to bake like um, business uh, business logic in there, and that really shouldn't be what it's about. Um, it's just a consistent way to to add functionality um, to to the outside. And it's a bit similar to a service mesh. There's sometimes a bit of confusion and the industry has confused itself by, uh, there used to be service meshes and API gateways, but then new versions were released where you could use API gateways added service mesh functionality. Oh man, we love doing that to ourselves, huh? API functionality is now both the same thing essentially. Um, but the most simplistic way of, of kind of characterizing them usually is you have uh, API gateway is the barrier to kind of the public outside internet and things are coming into your system. Um, and and the service mesh is when you're making requests that go out to other services. So yeah. a service mesh can still implement authentication. It's just when client makes a request to the service, you're kind of getting in the way of the request as opposed to the, the outside in. Stuff. Sure. So let me repeat some of that back to you just to make sure from, from the perspective of someone, yeah. let's say I was building something fresh or relatively fresh. I, I was, I'm working on a project that's getting more complicated. And so by nature, it, it suddenly has more dependencies on other uh, databases, services, whatever it may be. Uh, if I'm building something that suddenly has, I have to talk to two or three of my own databases internally from whatever, whatever sources that may be, that's when we're talking about an API gateway. Whereas if I'm pulling a bunch of external things, things say like the weather and, and the stock market and whatever else we're talking about a service mesh uh where where what would you call it when i need both do those two yeah, i mean sure both is pretty common i mean the, the reason that both systems added both things is because people were using both as both anyway um people i mean if you start trying to use an api gateway uh as a service mesh then kind of you lose some of the benefits, like you can use internal DNS, um, you know, like an internal network references and, and things like that um, mm -hmm. within a service mesh because they have like service discovery and lookup. So you don't even care what the URLs are. Um, but when you're kind of just doing everything with the API gateway, a lot of people kind of hard code the DNS. It has to kind of go outside and back in again. Um, right. where you have to do trickery in the network uh, to make it work. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a pain in the butt. Um, but service meshes kind of have that like sidecar approach where you run a process locally on on your container docker box whatever and you just kind of make requests to that and then it figures out how to talk to the other services so it's sure useful
So more, more concretely, what are some of the, the tools used for the, for both of those? Uh, I haven't looked into it in a little while, but, um, on, uh, Envoy and Istio were two pretty popular, um, approaches at the time. I think Envoy is quite low level and you're like mucking about with traffic, um, and kind of doing network level things. And then Istio is kind of the more, um, high level and adds, adds features out of the box, like, um, like the circuit breaker pattern, which I think we've got a blog post about and, um, and a few other kind of timeouts and, and retries stuff. It like, it adds those features that you can just enable as opposed to like, you have to make those features with Envoy, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thanks for clarifying those things. I, I wonder how much of our audience is sort of deep into that sort of stuff. And like uh, the, the difference yeah. of building an API for yourself and then starting to get really messy and get your feet into these other things starts to get confusing. Uh, sure. So I, I appreciate the, you know, defining and clarifying those things. It's one of those things that not a lot of people necessarily play around with. Like um, if, if you just build one API, you don't need a gateway necessarily, but as soon as you have yeah. like two or three or 10, then you kind of do. And then once you have like a hundred things, then you like absolutely need a service mesh, you know, service mesh. Like we, we don't have one at stoplight cause we have like one API and that's it. It's like a JavaScript thing. And then a, a API thing. That's fine. Um, but if we had three services, I'd still probably recommend a service mesh right there. Just cause. Yeah. Microservices without a service mesh are disgusting. It's everything falls over and breaks, and there's you know timeout problems and exponential backoff failure. Everything's just a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the I'm not going to call it compelling. I don't think it's the right word, but I think one of the reasons that I feel like GraphQL as a BFF is becoming popular is because of things like um, Gatsby and the Facebook Graph typically being used for read-only actions and being particularly user-friendly from a developer experience standpoint, right? Like it's really easy to understand that I'm going to query Facebook's open graph for, uh, and this is probably in a past state where Facebook's graph was a lot more open pre uh, a lot of recent political events, but, you know, being able to query your Facebook graph, say for like all the events that I have and the things I like and all this other stuff, I can understand the read activity of that. And maybe even in that case, caching is less important because you want the most up-to-date thing in some sense. Uh, but it's really easy to blur that line of like, that's a great example of, of how to teach people how graph and relational data, uh, non-relational databases work in that sense. But then it gets really easy to say, well, now we have this thing that we can bludgeon every sort of, uh, interface with, um, or every sort of API with, and, and we should layer GraphQL on top of that. I think people tend to get there because they've used read only services that, uh, make it easy to do that. Uh, I think it becomes really messy when you start talking about creating or or deleting or writing to uh, services through through uh, GraphQL. Um, but that's also where people started to get into trouble. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, Gatsby does make that stuff super simple. I've I've got a bunch of Gatsby running sites and and I love them. But yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a big difference between like a Gatsby based website and like a full on single page application that's doing a, a whole bunch of stuff. And right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easy to like. It's also really easy to envision your single page application for whatever purpose as an Apollo GraphQL whatever uh, <laughs> that's pulling together all of your sources. Because you, as as a developer, maybe even as an as a young developer, someone building your first sort of project of any depth, it's easy to see that. But uh, you really do start to lose performance, and a lot of the like you were saying, the restiness of things very quickly. Um, or the HTTP, as I suppose, in in ways that are like really really critical to performance and in some sense security too. Um, I wonder if there's a good way to educate people on that, right? To say like, hey, listen, if you're not really deep into understanding how APIs work and how HTTP protocol works, like how, how do we convey this to you that like really maybe you should take a second and think about this before you go and run and build your next unicorn startup using, you know, only a massive uh, GraphQL 
um, approach. Right. I mean, that's a, a, a bunch of really good points. And one of them um, mentioned like performance. Uh, that's actually another topic we want to talk about uh, on this episode with basically uh, at work we've noticed. We have a GraphQL API uh, stoplight um, and it's getting kind of tricky to monitor it um, using the usual kind of APM style, like New Relic. We, we have New Relic and New Relic is useless with GraphQL because everything is one endpoint. The, the whole concept of like, of having these endpoints and transactions, a request comes in, a response goes out, what happened in between those two things, right? Like that whole model doesn't really work when um, every, all the requests are going to the same endpoint. And <laughs> so it just means that instead of having like, instead of you see one endpoint and it's got, you know, a little graph like this and you see another endpoint and it spikes like that, it just means that everything is kind of average. Um, yeah. So you can't figure out nothing. And so as soon as you mention that, everyone says, well, you should just use Apollo. I'm like, okay, but you, we can use the Apollo platform for monitoring um, GraphQL stuff, but what about our non-GraphQL stuff? We have two different, completely different monitoring solutions for the same thing. So I looked into Datadog. They don't really support it. Um, Elastic APM is the one we're probably going to go with because hmm. they, they support, they've had to write specific support for every single Node.js implementation. Uh, sorry, every, diff every different um, GraphQL implementation. So there's Express, OpenAPI. Uh, sorry, I'm getting all mixed up today, but um, there's Express GraphQL and then like some other uh, Apollo's server GraphQL, and and they've had to write code for each one of those implementations to add custom transaction uh, stuff, so that you can just use their their APM as normal, which is really annoying. Um, but I am glad that they have ha have done that. I'm sad that they had to, but I, I'm glad that they've done that because I really want to be able to use the same uh, monitoring solution for everything. So you'd have to worry about two different lots of user access and you know teaching people two different systems and everything just being confusing. So. Found that. The bill there is high if you're having to use multiple services to monitor your endpoints as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that stuff gets expensive. Um, yeah, I, mean, I know from my past job, New Relic is not cheap at all, and I can only imagine that Elastic is probably right up there too. I mean, does, does it make sense, as someone who doesn't know anything about GraphQL really, I mean, does it make sense to kind of just try and log events in deeper into your application and try and monitor that way as a way, or like just spend the money and um, get the services going up as quickly as you can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, increasing, improving logging is the design document I'm writing right now. <laughs> so like that would help. We don't really have too much of that right now. Um, and, and absolutely like more logging would mean that monitoring is potentially less important. I mean, the expense is kind of an interesting thing because most of the time you're paying per host, uh, per, per, um, per server. So if you, you know, you have 10 servers and five over here and five over there, it doesn't really matter too much. It's more about just being bloody annoying. Um, I spent a lot of time at WeWork, like teaching people how new relic works cause they just didn't have a clue. Um, and, and it's, it's really, really good to learn. Um, it's a really powerful tool, but like it, it takes a lot of work to teach people how this stuff works. Um, especially some of the little tricks, like learning about the error percentile. When you look at the graph, um, that's like average requests. So you see that graph and it's like, oh yeah, everything looks fine. And you click that percentile like on, you're like, whoa, what's that one doing? And you realize that like five or 1% of your requests are taking like a minute instead of, instead of, you know, hundred milliseconds. <laughs> so yeah, people like learn tricks like that and just teaching them two completely separate systems. is just blooming annoying. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are people that get around it. There's an article which I will try and find and put in the show notes about why monitoring in GraphQL is really hard. And I think they start talking about why, you know, some of the ways they've got around it. But I would much rather just use Elastic APM if they've already added support for it and 
great. <laughs> Just do that. Yeah, yeah, that, ma- that makes sense. I mean, I haven't, I didn't even really know Elastic had an APM service out there, so it's, it's kind of cool to know that that's not a thing as well as a competitor mm-hmm. relic and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how you feel. Uh, how you fare with that. I'm, I'm curious what it looks like a month down the road or two months down the road once you've started using it. Hopefully your experience is really great with it. Um, I certainly don't know of any competitors that I would recommend, um, but but Elastic tends to make really good stuff and their documentation is always pretty top-notch too. Yeah, well, that's that's how I found out that they had it. Like that's a very, uh, they have a, a full list of every single framework that they support in GraphQL and like just beautiful documentation that's really meticulous. I think um, I didn't know that it existed until I started researching kind of log management solutions. And it's been a while since I've, I've set up login for APIs. And in the past, I think we had log entries at, at WeWork and I wasn't very happy with log entries. It's kind of, it was just very expensive and kind of a bit weak on features, but uh, so we were looking at uh, getting on the Elk stack, you know, uh, Elasticsearch and uh, Logstash and Kibana. And yeah, Elastic have a hosted Elk stack you can use. And I was like, oh, that looks pretty cool. And it they just so happen to have um, the APM as well. So we can just like send all of our stuff to Elasticsearch and have this one solution for everything. Hopefully there's good integration between like logs and, and monitoring and everything else. So yeah, we're going gonna to start playing with that. Uh, soon and hopefully by next episode I can share some findings. I don't know. Yeah, yeah we'll have to check back in. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear about like how they handle rest and everything too, just because. Uh, but so the change topics are best. Mike, you had some really good questions you wanted to bring up about like Firebase and things like that. And even though I don't think any of us really know much about Firebase, I think it'd be fun to just kind of see what we can come up with. So yeah, what are these burning questions? So I would um, put myself out there as between the three of us, the resident Firebase expert. Uh, my side projects, a lot of the, the things I work on uh, that aren't sort of my my um, gig with Gymnasium uh, are very central using Firebase for pulling data and syncing data and all that by nature. So, so given that you guys don't really know a ton about it, these questions might not land super well, but um, I saw Phil posted uh, last night or maybe this morning. I'm not exactly sure when I saw it, but it was something along the lines of it's really nice to be able to recommend tools for folks when they ask how to build an API now uh, because um, the the tooling that he's working on, the tooling that he's building is really helpful to, to help people set up, uh, for example, build documentation, to edit their API um, uh, schema, and to do things like uh, run a uh, scaffolded test server. Um, so... I'm gonna give a quick description of how my experience with Firebase as a database works. But the primary pitch for Firebase for data service is that it is a um, streaming uh, instant update data storage service. So in other words, if you have some sort of a, uh, and I should say too, it's non-relational. So it's, it's sort of like a document database. Um, it's stored in um, Google's cloud somewhere. And essentially the way it works is uh, you you pay attention to an endpoint in your database, um, uh, meaning, so for a concrete example, let's say I had a, an address book list. Uh, and so Firebase will tell you whenever your address book list is updated, whenever it's deleted, whenever you get um, an edit to anything in your address book, if you sort of subscribe to listen to it. So it's using WebSockets and all that goodness that, that uh, we have in some of our tools. What I'm curious about in particular is how you would think about designing an API for something where the the platform, the database service really is um, not by its nature designed to have a middleware on top of it. 
So in other words, one of the primary benefits to using Firebase is that I can subscribe to an endpoint in the database, to a, a, a target in the database, a list somewhere, and get updates whenever the database updates. But what it would be really nice to do would be able to, to uh, assign a database schema uh, or a, a, an API schema to it to say like, hey, I really want to validate this uh, for this field, right? Addresses should have a valid zip code that's either Canadian or American, uh, or um, you shouldn't be able to create this sort of a node without a relation to that sort of a node. Firebase just kind of doesn't have that sort of a thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if there's anything that you've seen or used or would recommend to someone to be able to, to structure a database that really needs live updating, but doesn't have, um, I don't know, doesn't, doesn't essentially remove that WebSocket functionality from Firebase without, um, um, I guess, a really good reason. I don't know, does that question even make remote sense? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, so how how are you actually making the request? Is it a HTTP request or is it something different? WebSockets, everything's just a WebSocket? Yeah, it's it's WebSockets. It's through Firebase or through Google's um, uh, APIs. So they have like a Ruby one, a JavaScript one, uh, and um, Java, all, all of the sort of platforms they have a supported native library for. Um, so you're not setting up something like an HTTP request, but you're using their internal stuff. And I, I'd imagine that's sort of what makes it particularly challenging to put middleware on top of. Okay. Yeah, because I'm looking at the um, Firebase documentation, and they have got a thing which is like you can you can use HTTP requests. Um, it's got like a, there's a Node.js example with Express, and you just kind of make requests um, as Express. If if it's HTTP requests, you can absolutely just use like Open API and, and JSON schema as normal, and just you know validate things um a really cool api gateway actually back to that topic is um express gateway and it's like a node.js thing um which just kind of like passes your requests through so you could you could theoretically be running express gateway with uh, json schema validation stuff built in and then it just you know, re uh, validates the incoming request before it passes it on um um yeah that would be one way to wrap it if it's if it's websockets i have no idea of any sort of tools that do the same sort of thing you know like a a websocket proxy or something is what you need with, with yeah. middleware support. And I, I don't know anything about that. Sounds cool though. Yeah. Yeah. At some time we, we should jump on a screen share and I should walk you through like what it looks like. And bear in mind that all of this comes through the lens of my own learning of Firebase as, as uh, you know, I have through, through developing these projects, but um, mm. it seems like their um, whole infrastructure guides you towards building a database that has like its own validation rules put in their native language. Uh, and then a slew of microservices built on Google's equivalent of <laughs> Lambda functions. So like Google right. Cloud functions, I think they're called. Uh, and it, it really like can lend itself to becoming very confusing very quickly. And I've, I've seen a handful of blog posts about like, oh man, like we didn't realize that these two cloud functions were calling each other and updating the same part of the database and triggering <laughs> each other over and over. And like oh, yeah. really trigger some cloud spend in a way that gets out of control, uh, you know, in minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a <laughs> section of, of database logic. And Bill, in particular, when you and I are writing the book, some of the things that like I've left comments about or, or we've talked about um, sort of as side conversations really come from my, my experience building, um, I would call it almost a pseudo API on top of a database that works like this, where mm. um, it, it's um, a matter of pulling the database um, inverted from what you would typically think. So your software isn't going and asking the database, hey, what's up? It's the database saying, hey, I got something new. Uh, and and right, right. talking to you in that way. So a lot of the time, my perspective is sort of backwards. And I think really that has to do with me coming at this as a front-end developer who didn't really have to know the back-end stuff uh, to begin yeah, with. Yeah, I got you. That sounds really interesting. Um, 
yeah, I think there's probably something that Async API can be helping out with there, and I'm sure there's there's some tooling around there. Um, I think a lot of the kind of API stuff I'm working on at the moment is incredibly classically um, you know, like HTTP request response model. That's about it. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's a, it's a lot about Open API specifically, and it's a lot about just HTTP request response. And I, I want to start branching the tooling out and the writing out and everything out as as more and more real time stuff, um, especially in the specification world, starts to happen. So async api in general you know it's version two i think it's still rc but it's, it's getting really powerful um and there's a lot of tooling starting to show up and you know prism um is at some point going to start doing async api work like right now the it's it's a mock server that can also handle like proxying with um validation on so it, in, in a way it's becoming just like that express gateway functionality like prism you could run that um, and it will give you validation errors if your requests are rubbish, and then it makes them to the upstream thing. There's no reason that sort of stuff can't be done for asynchronous um, style things as well. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to work on that. I just really want to nail like the the basic request response. Here's your JSON. Like once that stuff is completely nailed, which honestly I feel like Stoplight is pretty much done now. Like there's no more there's no more confusion around trying to glue random crap bits of tooling together that are all out of date and you don't really work properly like yeah they have something for everything there it just works and it's great and it's integrated so like now that that's sorted out start branching out into more like asynchronous real-time apis you know it is pretty magical to see what stoplight's able to do it removes i would say 99 percent of my excuses about not doing test-driven development because uh, <laughs> most of the time that has to do with like yeah but then we'd have to mock an endpoint and deal with the server and like well, what do i know about that you know and, and getting rid of that is uh <laughs> something that's going to force me to write better software. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's helpful. I think on the last episode we talked, uh, Cydia wasn't totally released yet, but now I know it's it's general availability. Um, yeah. I've played with it. I have I love the tool. I think it's great. Um, my boss asked me for it, so I sent it to him even. Um, but how like how is the team feeling? Like Was it a successful launch? Like Is everyone happy with it? Everyone's kind of calm down for a little bit for the next big thing or yeah um it's had a, amazing feedback um i had like the the one tweet is like here it is it's finally out and it got like 600 retweets and likes and stuff it just blew up um <laughs> which was really fun everyone was a bit confused i think my twitter was like 95 percent of the traffic source so that was <laughs> like the whole internet went yay retweet and clicked on it um but <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's gone really well. Um, lots of really good feedback. There were a couple of issues. We're, we're on version uh, 1.112. So there was a big kind of, there was a minor release, which added a few more features and, and fixed a bunch of stuff. Um, and then we've just done a few more incremental um, bug fixes. A lot of the work at the moment is going on uh, bug stuff, just because we we did all sorts of testing with all sorts of repositories. We looked at um, Mike Ralphson's uh, OpenAPA three examples. He's got this repo of like real tricky like asshole OpenAPI examples, <laughs> and just like you know circular references and awkward things and like malicious stuff that will try and cause memory overflows and just like the worst. We we run all of those and we got it all working and we felt good. But then people when when unlimited number of people start doing like random repositories, you know, we completely forgot about the use case where if someone has a repo with like a gigabyte file in it, you know, like some giant video in there and that completely mucks it up. Um, and a bunch of other things like that. So we've been, we've been fixing things like mad. Um, but there's a bunch of people working on fixing all those bugs. So, you know, they come in, they get fixed, we release updates and we've got auto update on there as well. So if that's enabled and works on your operating system, then you just, it just gets better over time. Nice. 
That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, that, that's that's really cool. I mean, I, I sat down and within an hour of opening it up and getting it going, I had an API pretty much scaffold and about the time it took me to drink a cup of coffee, to be honest, like just <laughs> really fast. It was really easy, super intuitive. Um, so to you, to the team, uh, I, I know some of you guys at Stoplight listen to us rant and rave, uh, but thank you all for your hard work. Um, I know this is going to be a huge tool for the API community. So, um, you know, again, thank you guys for that one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what, what is next at Stoplight then, Phil? Um, so I'm working on the hosted mocking solution right now. Um, so r- right now for people that, that want to kind of share their mock server with somebody, you can kind of, if you both have studio installed, then you just kind of get pull and then you get the updates and you click mock server and you run it locally. So we want to have the hosted mock server up that should, should hopefully not take too long. Um, and what else are we working on? Uh, ugh, mostly log management. That's not very exciting. No one cares about that. There's, <laughs> there's oh, something we just fixed up actually is custom rule sets. So rule sets for a while were a little bit funky. Um, rule sets are basically in spectral. Think of them as like a style guide. Like your company can have a style guide where you say, we want all of our URLs to have, you know, to be plural um, if they're a collection and everything should be in the JSON response should be camel case instead of underscores for whatever reason. And like all these different types of thing, you know, like uh, all, all, um, all operations should have a, uh, should have a description so people know what the heck they're doing. All of that sort of stuff is stuff that you can write yourself. Um, and that's really what Spectral was about. I think a few people thought it was a validator that was a tad opinionated, but really it's about style guides for your company, for all of your APIs. Um, and they were a bit limited before you couldn't make custom, um, you couldn't make custom functions. So um, if, if like Spectral didn't supply the thing out of the box, like there was no way to to check the plurals. Um, so like now you can just write your own stuff and eventually we'll, we'll keep on growing the, um, the style guide uh, functions and powers and, you can, it's just a, a nice, simple little YAML file. And then if you want to reference um, some JavaScript functions, you just reference those and it's, well, it's TypeScript. Um, but yeah, works real good. Nice. I, I saw a tweet the other day. Um, Stoplight also has hosted documentation, right? Yeah, yeah, free hosted documentation. Which I kind of think was like one of the high highlights of the, the specy tool you wrote, which was really quickly able to generate Redoc um, and then throw it on GitHub pages or netlify whatever you want to so um knowing that now stoplight does that as well i think is a huge win um it will help even more people so yeah uh, maybe maybe we can burn specky to the ground <laughs> yeah there's there's not really much reason to keep specky around i mean the the team over at we work uh well there's not like a team working on it the, the the very nice two people that agreed to kind of keep merging pull requests uh they don't have a huge amount of time to work on it so it's pretty much unmaintained um I think bugs get fixed now and then, but there's no huge development work being done. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we've got like multiple people crushing out, you know, knocking out huge, awesome features on a regular basis. So the, the one thing that Specky does still is that it will convert, um, it will convert like, uh, it converts proper JSON schema to like open API flavored schema objects, um, which, which this doesn't do. Yeah. Spectral doesn't do that. It's just like, you have to write proper API, open API. Sorry. Um, so that's that's one thing I'd like to solve. But seeing as we have plug and play resolvers, um, you theoretically someone could just write a different resolver that's you know it replaces the standard HTTP and file loading resolver with one that also converts JSON schema. And then there's no reason to keep it around. Yeah. Um, like the the stoplight doc stuff is so awesome because it you don't have to figure out what tool you're going to use to generate the documentation and um, 
and, and like where you're going to host it and how to, you know, hook that up on CI um, and, and all this other stuff. It just, it just does it. You know, you can, in studio, you can click publish and it will just go straight up there. You'd have to do anything. It's already hosted on a URL. We're adding the ability to, you know, have paid, um, paid custom domains and stuff like that soon, but it's just the like free hosted one for now. Um, so you can do that or we'll give you a command that you can run in your CI CD that will just kind of update for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and copying and pasting one command versus like trying to work out how to deploy to, uh, S3 or whatever else, like it's, it's completely different. Uh, and the fact that a lot of the tools like, um, like Redoc and, uh, it's just that the other one, there's, there's nothing good. I mean, swaggy UI, if anyone still uses that, that those, um, those tools only do API reference documentation. So you can't have like markdown files with other giant guides and information in there, which Stoplight Studio supports as well. So yeah, you can hook it up, like whatever your workflow is, wherever you'll get stored, whatever you're doing, you can, you can just use this thing and it's free and you don't have to figure out any of that crap. Nice. Nice. So that, that answers my other question, which was, is the Stoplight stuff like a homegrown solution or is it like Redoc that y'all just kind of did, but it sounds like Stoplight kind of wrote their own um, to kind of handle, again, markdown files and other information that's not API specific for front-end developers, back-end developers, you know, whoever's... Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we uh, we are against kind of using open API specific tooling because it's not going to be just open API. We, we also support like uh, JSON schema standalone proper models. So if you don't have any open API in your company, but you do have JSON schema models, you can still use that. Um, and, you know, async API is going to be added soon and everything else. So we've We've really kind of abstracted a lot of stuff away, uh, which which means that you know we can add more stuff in the future. Like if, if RAML gets important, no one seems to want RAML. I asked, I tweeted out, and I was like, I saw uh, it, yeah. it was just like um, if I was to add support for RAML, would you want version eight? Uh, sorry, zero zero eight version one, or you don't care at all? And it was like ninety percent of people don't care at all. I was like, oh, all right, I guess RAML's not really a thing anymore. Um, but API Blueprint might be making a comeback. I was chatting to those folks, and, and that might be a thing. So we could we could add support for API Blueprint theoretically, and um, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, nice, cool. So uh, last really burning question is uh, how is the the trees coming along, and when might we see everyone back on a bike? That's a good question. It looks like you guys were having fun riding bikes together. I didn't realize you were in the same place. Um, yeah, I am not. <laughs> Um, I, I had a weight loss challenge um, thrown my way, and part of it was riding a metric century, which is 62 miles or 100 kilometers. Um, and the goal was under three and a half hours, so 18, 19-ish mile per hour pace. And uh, I was just talking to Mike about it one day, just kind of through Slack, just kind of ranting. I was like, you know, I'm not getting any faster. This is terrible. And he's like, I'm going to come on over and do it with you. And I was like, okay, yeah, cool. So uh, he... <laughs> He drove up the night before we both went. It was about 45 minutes north of where I live, um, right on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. And uh, we stayed together for a good while, didn't we? Um, Until about the 30-mile mark is when I kind of took off. Yeah, Yeah, that's when it all came on a hinge for me. I learned a few important lessons that uh, that weekend. One in particular is a uh, seven or eight hour drive the night before a long bike ride is really havoc on the legs. Uh, oh, that sounds terrible, yeah. Yeah, I felt like my legs were a thousand pounds each that day. Uh, and then also like food that you eat on the side of the highway uh, in the US is probably not the best fuel for a pre-ride oh, adventure. Just Dunkin' Donuts the whole way, right? Oh man, I was in oh, shape. 
I, I'm I'm uh, proud to say that Matt rode circles around me that day. You took off like a rocket, man. You you uh, you're you really taking care of business. Um, <laughs> and and I had a lot of fun. Like it was a beautiful route. I'd love to do it again next year. Um, but it was it was definitely a very taxing day on me. By the end of it, like we rode, I think from seven in the morning to like eleven or twelve or something like that. Uh, and afterwards, we had like plans to go grab hot chicken because that's the Nashville thing to eat. And like. Oh, my um, stomach was in ruins. Like I told Matt, I was like, I don't even think I can have a drink right now. Uh, and so we went to a burger. I just ate fire. Yeah, that's it, man. I, I had like a, a big uh, Coke and then like two or three French fries. And I was like, nah, man, I can't eat. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, then I hopped on the road and drove another eight hours back home, which again, probably not the best idea for my legs. But. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, well, my legs are messed up. I, I injured my Achilles tendon. Um, it's not snapped, um, but it is very strained and it feels like there's polystyrene crunching around in there sometimes. Um, I, I rested it for like a week and then I was like, I'm fine and jumped back on the bike and two days later, not fine. So I rested it for two weeks and then jumped back on the bike and I went to cyclocross practice here in, in New York and was just whipping it around the park, just going mad, um, jumping on and off the bike, all that stuff and jumping over barriers. And then, uh, yeah, my foot was not fine. So I, I keep resting it for like hardly any time and then getting back to it. Um, and I need to like properly rest it for like six to eight weeks, which is absolutely devastating, but it means I'm getting time to work on other projects. So, um, I'm working on awesome earth. I've got a GitHub repo where I'm collecting all of the, like, here's something you can do to make the planet better, like offset earth, which I talked about and a bunch of other ones, like switch energy suppliers. Here's a subscription service for like, uh, cleaning supplies that don't have plastic, all this stuff. Right. So I'm working on those. I'm working on the book and I'm getting things done. Um, so I'm not that upset now that i've realized i'll have six weeks to work on things um but it, it does mean that i'm like limping around and, and can't walk for 20 minutes without being in pain and i just have to like ice all the time so oh, are, are you in new york now for the next six to eight weeks or i've got a bunch of conferences coming up so i'm having to like try even harder to save the planet to offset the flights the flights were so stupid i, I didn't think this through um, I submitted to four conferences, four API conferences, and got accepted to three of them. And I wasn't expecting that. Um, but I was in Amsterdam just anyway, because it's where my friend lives, and then went to the first conference in Seattle. Now I have to go back to Amsterdam for the next conference, and then back to Vancouver. It's the dumbest thing. They're right next to each other. Seattle and Vancouver are like a short bus trip away. So if I could have cancelled any one of those, then I wouldn't have had to like bounce across the, the earth. But I'm doing like 9,000 miles for pretty much no reason um or even more than that so <laughs> not great but i am going to be at pretty much every single api conference this year um i just missed uh, api days in barcelona my friend vincenzo did a great job there um but yes i'm going to be at uh api the docs in amsterdam and i'll see you at api specification conference in in october as well that one's yeah the specification one, that's that's a new one, right? That like they just spun that one up, I think. Yeah, I think it's a rename. I think there was a different conference and now it's that. Um was it API, was it API Strat initially? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. Uh, so yeah, they needed a new name and I think they came up with one that was awesome, but then somebody else took it and so now they just have this name, which is a bit weird. Like <laughs> API the docs and API specifications are two very niche things. So I, I hope that they do well, right? Like yeah, I hope that there are people, a lot of people that are like, oh, API documentation, woo, you know, oh, I can't wait to go to that. I really hope there are. Um, it, it just, they, they seem very specific, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Not being to either. Yeah, no, I mean, it'll be cool. I'm, I'm curious to hear about them. Um, real quick, how was uh, uh, API City? City. How was that one? 
Yeah, it was really good conference. It was a one day track, um, uh, one day, one track. Um, the talks were 20 minutes. So uh, <laughs> this happened to me last year. I had like a 40 minute talk just smushed into 20 minutes. So this time I, I was like really, really fast trying to get through it all. And I finished my talk in like 16 minutes. <laughs> um, but it means that you get a lot of different content throughout the day. You, you, you go to a conference and you get like, you know, 40 speakers that you can listen to because everyone just goes, uh, goes through on these really short 20 minute talks. Um, probably not actually 40, but whatever. Math. Um, yeah, great conference. Happy to, happy to go to that again next year if, if it's all possible and the year before. So, nice. yeah. so Amsterdam is next for you, right? Yes, APA the Docs is the one. Mike, uh, where's the next chance someone might catch you in the wild? Yeah, uh, so actually tomorrow night, uh, as we're recording this, which is going to be way too late by the time you hear this, but I'm going to be up at Jamstack uh, Meetup in Boston. Um, So there's a a Jamstack Meetup that they have in Boston. Next week, I'm going to be at the Jamstack Meetup in Philadelphia, uh, which would be September the 23rd, maybe, 24th. It's a Wednesday night. so Boston this week, Philadelphia next week, and then I'm going to Artifact Conference in Austin, Texas the week after that. So I'm bouncing around quite a few things over the next few weeks. Um, yeah, that's going to that's gonna keep me busy uh, for a while. And then after that, hopefully nothing planned. Uh, what about you, Matt? Uh, I will be, by the time this episode is rec- uh, put out to the masses, uh, it'll be too late, but I'll be at Cascadia PHP this weekend keynoting. Um, I'm the closing keynoter, so that's kind of weird that I get that honor, but it's it's super cool. And then I have yet to submit to a single conference next year. I'm probably just going to take it easy and um, work on getting in shape for uh, the crit season because I'm going to attempt to be a crit racer. So I might oh, die. Man. That's we'll going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to you're going to be crashing inside a face. <laughs> you can take it. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, but guys, it was great talking to you guys as always. Um, I look forward to the next time we catch up. Um, uh, as you know, Phil is at Phil Surgeon, Mike is at Irreverent Mike, and I'm at Matthew Trask. Uh, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, guys. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>